Welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on solitaire board games. I'm your host, Albert, and this is episode 157, the Underground Edition. Alright, welcome everybody. Today I have a guest who is uh, re- uh, replacing Julius. Julius is not available today, it's a Saturday. And um, this is Lee Broderick. He's uh, from the One Player Guild, and he has designed a game that's going to be on Kickstarter soon. And so we're going to talk about a game he likes, Caverna, <laughs> and and about his new game. Hi. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> Pretty good, how are you? Great. And thank you for, for coming on and doing this. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having exciting. me. Mm-hmm. I always enjoy uh, interview episodes. I think they're the best ones because I don't have to talk. <laughs> everybody er- makes everybody's intelligent makes me sound, you know, just a little bit. Well, we haven't started yet. You don't know how hard I'm going to make you work. <laughs> okay. <Uh-oh. laughs> oh gosh. All right. Well, I don't have any news. We usually start with news. Um, so I'd, I'm ready to jump into your game if you want. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Um, so, how, how do you want to start with that? Uh, um, what? Well, so, so we we talked about talking about um, Uwe Rosenberg games because there's been some threads mm. on BGG lately about Uwe Rosenberg. Yeah, it seems to be a perennial topic that comes up in the guild every so often, doesn't it? Somebody posts and says, "What's the the best Rosenberg game for solo?" and a bunch of people chime in. Um, same few names are mentioned, but no, I don't think there's any consensus as to what the best game is from of his designs for the solo players, is there? I no, there isn't. And you know, the, the problem is he's got too many good ones. And he he does. I don't know if you've ever um, looked at people's you know, top twenties when they're submitted every year to Kevin, but um, I, I routinely have sort of seven or eight Rosenberg titles in my top twenty. <laughs> wow, okay, that's a lot. Yeah, that's, that's almost <laughs> half of your games there. I know, I know. I, I I kind of feel bad doing it. Like I should be spreading it around more. But yeah, th- those are the games that I enjoy. So that's where so it goes. There you go. Yeah, that's right. But you know, um, have you ever noticed the the war game threads when somebody says, you know, I want to get into war gaming? What game should I start with? You know, a good solitaire mm. war game, or even multiplayer, it doesn't matter. And yeah. often the answer is invariably. Pick a subject that you find interesting, because you're going to yeah. enjoy it way more if, if you find the subject interesting. Otherwise, you're going to be bored out of your mind. And I, and I've had that happen to me. I I've tried war games that I just didn't care about the subject because I didn't care about that time period, and, and the game was fell, fell flat yeah. for me. And so yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think that applies to Euro games as well. Um, I think um, you know what one of Rosenberg's games, Fields of Valor. I, I I really like that because um, I. I didn't grow up in Holland or even in the, in flat places, but I did grow up in an area with a lot of peat and peat cutting. Um, and I remember four or five years ago, I was in the Orkney Islands on holiday mm-hmm. and they had a, a, a traditional house there that was sort of kept as it was since the family abandoned it in the 60s. And as we walked in through the door, the fire was burning and it was, it was a peat fire and the smell just took me right back to my childhood and people burning peat on the fires there. So there's that sort of visceral nostalgia sense that I get from from Fields of Arla. Um and and farming generally. You know, I grew up in a farming community. I enjoy farming games. I see. So okay. that, that's probably a large part of the appeal. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I have I've never grew up in a farm. I grew up in a city. It was pretty much a suburbs where I grew up. So I have no experience mm-hmm. with that. Now I live in a smaller city, and and we're getting chickens and stuff. So it's an adventure. Yeah. And we got a little small garden and, and whatnot for, for growing food. And it's very much an adventure. So, yeah, I, I, I kind of enjoy the games that have that sort of thing in it because of that. So, mm. yeah, I agree with you. I think, yeah, that's the same as anything. You, you can, you know, the, the more you can relate to something, the more experience you have of it, the, the more you're going to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. Uh, <laughs> or, or possibly which, more which even. Which is why I'm it. designing a fantasy game. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, yeah. So, so do you have uh, favorite Uwe games? I get Manga, obviously you do. Obviously, I, I do. In that, I uh, you know I, I submit my my ranked top twenty list. Um, trying to choose between them at various levels is is, is tough. Um, mm-hmm. I generally say that uh, a feast for Odin is my favourite. Um, I think because it combines you know the worker placement and also the the polyomino style of some of his more recent games, I enjoy that as well. Um, and again, you know, the theme's great. Um, I guess some people might say it's not thematic, but it's, you know, it's a board game. You use your imagination, don't you? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you, you definitely have to. <laughs> yeah, okay, I have not played that one, um, at all. I think, I think my favorite right now is, uh, Newfjord. Yeah, that's, I've just played that recently, actually. Oh, okay. It's, it's, it's another good game. Um, I think what's, what's sort of so satisfying about that one is that there's a lot going on, but it's very quick. Yes, yes. Uh, and I think you know you you can squeeze in a game so quickly of it, um, and it's uh, but it still it still feels like you've played a full proper game. It doesn't feel like you know the side offering. That's right, yeah, and and you know there's there's so much variability with all the different card decks and whatnot that I think you know I could always play it. And it always feels fresh because of that. Cause yeah. Every time the strategy is a little bit different. There, yeah. There's a, what, what an expansion t- for it now. I just ordered. I haven't gotten it. It's a deck of cards. There is, yeah. I picked it up at um, Essen last year. As well as a deck of cards, it also comes with metal coins. Oh, okay. Um, they it, they've they only replace the number one coins, which, as you probably know, are incredibly annoying. Oh, those little sort of tight. Ty- yeah, <laughs> just trying to pick them up. That's at half your playtime. Just trying to pick up those tiny little <laughs> coins. So they replace the coins from that with some metal ones, but then it kind of feels a bit weird that you've got these metal coins for the one denomination and cardboard for the others. Oh gosh, yeah, that's funny. No, maybe maybe they'll make us <laughs> like an ex- expansion with uh, more coins. With- yeah, maybe. <laughs> I've I've never got into the the metal coin thing. It just seems like a, an unnecessary yeah. thing out of a game. I don't know. Yeah, but though with the like you said with the little itty bitty coins, it does help in that case, and I could see that it does. Yeah, just just bigger coins helps in well, that's that true. case. <laughs> <laughs> now, I I actually put metal coins in my gates of Luoyang. I, I got a some right. replica Chinese coins. Yeah, and and use that, and that makes it a little bit fun for me. Like I kind of like it there because it's so thematic. Yeah, I, I can see that. I mean, Luang's another great game. I just played that this morning, funnily enough, before coming on. Oh, okay. Um, I had a, a bean farming morning. I, I played some Luang, and before that, I played my first game of Al Kaboon. Oh, really? Which okay. Is the, yeah, the the solo version of Bonanza, which I'd never played. Yeah, there's a, there's a few different solo versions, actually. Or soloable versions, I should say. Um, right, okay. Bon Rosen? That's Al Alcaboon or Alcabona, depending on whether you're Dutch or German, is um yeah so- solo or two players straight out of the box. That's right. But it seems to be an out of print for a long time. Yeah, I think in I, th- I forget. I think in the US it comes with the base game. At least you right, have all okay. the cards available for it. Just it doesn't bring the rules for the for the solo. Game. Right. Maybe that's how they package it now, and I just didn't know. <laughs> uh, I'm not. Sh- I'm, not- I'm so out of touch with that game. Honestly, I'm not sure. I've only played it solo a couple times, and and the one time I played a multiplayer game, it it totally fell flat with us because the, it. the group I was playing with, mm-hmm. everybody was sort of helping each other out a lot, like giving, some, <laughs> and it, it just didn't work. It was just so much so can dumb. depend on the group. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I I find that I know if I play games with my partner, we're, we're doing exactly that. That 
we're, we're, we're helping each other out. Um, with, there's a word game that we particularly like to play called Snatch. Mm-hmm. And in that, you can, you have letters that go into the offer, as you like, in, in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and as soon as you see, see a word that's at least three letters, you can take that into your scoring part. Uh, but you can also use letters from the offer to add to those existing words and make them longer. And if you do that, you can steal other people's words as well. Ah, oh, okay. And we'll be sitting there doing a backwards and forwards. Like, oh, no, your word's much better than mine. You take it. <laughs> you know, it, it, it works in some games. I think it, in a game like that, I could see that, that being fun, trying to help each yeah. other find really good words. and whatnot. When I play... um. What what is this game? Like, why can't I not remember? Uh, Five tribes. I find that mm-hmm. you know towards the end it gets very tight, and everybody's just trying to find that one optimal move. I find that yeah. I, I want to help other people. It's, it's just you know, I just want to see what the yeah. best scoring things are possible. Yeah, it's funny. I was just chatting to my brother um, a couple of days ago. He's just getting into modern board games now. And he was saying that his group, uh, they're, they're, they're really mean and nasty to each other. And that he's very much, my brother, one of these sort of zero-sum players that, as far as he's concerned, everybody getting nothing is exactly the same as everybody getting something. So mm. if he, if he's not getting some, if he's getting nothing out of it, he, it, it's, he'd rather almost just do people over than, um, than get something for himself. Oh gosh. But okay. I remember when I first sort of got into modern board games, um, it's probably nearly 10 years ago now. Um, and uh, I, I'm an archaeologist. Mm-hmm. I, I spent several years um, doing sort of two two months field work every summer in Mongolia. And there was one summer out there that one of the other members of staff brought a co- along a copy of Carcassonne Hunters and Gatherers. Oh, and okay. we played it every night at least once for the entire sort of two months we were there. It became a staple of our expeditions out there in subsequent years sort of the week before the flights were due, one of us would be getting hold of one of the other. Somebody packed this, have we got it to take with us? But that first month, I think the the first night, this the, the person that, whose game it was, she started sort of negotiating with us. Like, oh, oh, well, you know, if, if you go there and help go this field, we'll share it and we'll, we'll both get lots of points that way. And then just before the game ended, she'd do someone over and just take all the points for herself. <laughs> oh, God. And she did this sort of two, three nights in a row. And... The rest of us were all genuinely just going, oh, no, that's fine. I don't mind sharing this and we'll both have points. That works out fine. And after three, four nights, none of us would share the fields with her and build them together. We'd block her out immediately. And she got really upset and started crying and said, well, why, why is everybody making out like I'm really mean? Like, well, because you've been mean <laughs> to everyone else for the last three, four days. Gosh. <laughs> These things come around. <laughs> yeah, gaming is a skill, isn't it? <laughs> it's such yeah. a skill. So what kind of archaeology do you do? I imagine, I mean, there's there must be different... Uh, specialties in that sort of thing. There are. So I'm a zooarchaeologist, which means that my specialism is looking at um, past animal remains, mainly animal bones. Mm-hmm. Um, I specialise particularly in mammals and birds. Fish are just weird, frankly. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, at the moment, I work for a commercial company in the UK who uh, do uh, rescue digs effectively ahead of um, sort of major infrastructure and development work. Mm-hmm. Um. Previously, I was freelancing. I did a lot of work um, across, I say, a lot of work in Mongolia, um, also across various countries in Africa. Ah, okay. Uh, do you do you so, work yeah, with like, prehistoric animals or or later or whatever? Um, so all, all the material that I look at, look at comes from sites in association with past human activity. Okay. So obviously, you know, that means we're not going back as far as dinosaurs. Um. 
most of the material you look at, um, particularly at the moment, most of the material I look at with the company I'm working for is Roman. Um, where I've worked Mongolia with sort of Bronze Age, Iron Age stuff. Um, and then sort of the, the, the early pastoralists um, and some further back that I was looking at when we were working in Africa. So no, no, no sort of really early prehistoric wild beasts, but, you know, potentially... Um, if if it was a, an early uh, Paleolithic site or something, there might be mammoths or that kind of thing. Um, I have had found some aurochs in Britain, which are extinct now. I don't know if you know aurochs. They're uh, they're the ancestors of domestic cattle. Oh, okay. I didn't. I do not know. Yeah. Neat. Okay. I mean that that's pretty cool. That sounds like a fun job, really. It's it's certainly an interesting one. I think any job, if you do it long enough, can get tedious. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you, you, I mean, it helps if you enjoy the work, first of all. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, neat. Okay, well, let's... Um, do we want to talk more about Uwe in, ge- Uwe in general, or do we want to talk about uh, Caverna? I'm happy so. I mean, Caverna's uh, an interesting one to, to bring up. I think normally when we're talking about, or when the guild's talking about the best Uwe games, Caverna doesn't get a look in. Um, a lot of people will... We'll play it right down and um, talk about how it's a, a solvable puzzle. Mm-hmm. Now, I do and have I, issues with that. I, I got to admit it. Yeah. I've never played Caverna because of that. I have um, Fields of Arl. No, not, mm-hmm. yeah, I do have that. I haven't played it at all yet. Partially yeah. because there's so much in that box, I'm completely intimidated. <laughs> That's a huge part of it. <laughs> but also Oran Labora. And I've played that, yeah. and, and I was kind of... I felt let down because it was solvable. At the same time, mm-hmm. I realized that the game is complex enough that I could probably play it a good 50 times before I really came in when you're solving it, and I, I don't imagine I would. No, absolutely. I mean, all the above, I must admit, I haven't played. It's um, it's something I've been wanting to get for two, three years, and it's been out of print. The last year, they keep saying they're reprinting it, but no, it still mm-hmm. hasn't appeared. But... I think um of, you know of those three as I understand it Caverna has the most static setup um Fields of Arla has some buildings that are randomly placed at the beginning of each game mm-hmm. <laughs> your cats come to join us yeah, there's a cat trapped in the room in here cuz they also eat in this room to to keep the dogs Oh okay there. and so now there's a cat and he wants out give me a break here give me a second. <laughs> yeah so Caverna is um Okay, another cat came in. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> one in, one out. Yeah, we have four, and so it's, it's a revolving door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Caverna is the most static setup of any of them. Um, but you're right. I think um, it, it really it goes back to what we we're talking about just now—the the different kinds of gamer that are out there. And I, I kind of get it if you're the kind of um, person that plays games in order to always do things optimally and you want to sit things out and work it out in advance and say, okay, this is what I'm going to do in this game and this is going to get me you know, two points more than what this is going to do. And that I'm sh- if you're that kind of person, then I can see how it would fall flat. But I, I'm not that kind of person. Um, I, you know, my, my brain just doesn't work in that way. Mm-hmm. And I think... Um, f- Possibly for that reason, I, I like Caverna a, a lot more than a, uh, the, the general opinion of it might lead you to, to believe. Um, there are some other people in the guild as well that, um, that really enjoy it for the same reasons I do. And I've always sort of described it as the most sandbox experience of, of all of Uwe's games. 
Um, Ricky Royal pointed out to me last year that Sandbox is now being used in a different way to the way that I've always used it. Mm. Um, to me, to me, a Sandbox game is a, a game that gives you a whole load of tools and then just goes, okay, go nuts, see, see what you want to do with it. Let's, let's see what you can happen. Um, it's, you know, the world is your oyster kind of thing. Um, and that's kind of what I mean by it. Some people now apparently are using it interchangeably with like an open world adventure. Oh, which okay. to me is a very different kind of game. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, think um, I agree with, with your definition. Okay. Well, I'm, at least I'm not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> but from that point of view, I think Caverna does provide a, a, a really interesting game that you, the restrictions within the game come from yourself. So I almost always in Caverna if not every time, I think, start out at the beginning saying, okay, I'm not going to do any farming. Which kind of sounds strange for a game that is about farming, but it's also, also it's meant to be about dwarves. Mm-hmm. And in my head, dwarves don't farm. Right, yeah. That, that seems so that was all, there was always this kind of disconnect there between you know the theme and how it was playing out. Um, and that's actually how I came to came to design Dwarf in the first place. I see. It okay. was... It was uh, just over two years ago, before the 2017 Solitaire Pint and Play contest. I think the night before, I played a game of Caverna there, and I exactly that restriction. I said, I'm not going to be doing any farming in this game. Oh. Um, and then I sort of, as I was packing it away at the end of the night, I thought, you know, yeah, maybe, maybe I could design a worker placement game where you were doing the things that a dwarf does. And at the time, I already had a game that I was partway through designing for that year's print to play contest. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, you know, that, that can be that can be next year's game. I'll make a note of this somewhere. And I got up the next morning and I was still thinking about it. And I drove to work and as I was driving back from work, I was still thinking about it. And by the time I got home, I had sort of the basic ideas to how the game might start to work. So <laughs> I set oh, wow, about okay. designing it. Uh, by that weekend, I had a playable prototype. Um, so it started really from the idea of um, just being a dwarf, doing work, dwarf actions. But at the same time, I wanted to redress some of the balance, some of the issues that other people have with Caverna. Um, you know, obviously, I'd been around the One Player Guild long enough to have heard these voiced countless times. Um, so one of the issues people always talk about with Caverna is the fact that it's a high score game. A lot of people don't like high score games. Mm-hmm. So that meant having a scoring opponent. Yep. But I didn't. I didn't want one that was you know too difficult to manage. Otherwise, if I spend more time managing an opponent's turn than I do my own, then the game's just not fun anymore. It's become busy work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the other part of it was um, this this puzzle aspect that people that some people don't like. Um, so that the game is always going to be different. Um, and I I quickly came up with the idea that. Uh, if the game is going to be different, that means that you need variability. But traditionally, worker placement games have that variability introduced in the setup. Like we were just talking about some of the different buildings that are randomized in Fields of Arlo and more mm-hmm. so in some of Vuve's other games. Um, whereas I wondered if there was a way of, in, in, of including variability throughout the arc of the game. So that was what I set out to do. And the simplest way to do that was that your the worker placer spots that you can place your workers on each turn will, t- will change in every turn during the game. Okay. Um, which okay. has the, the strange effect, I think, that 
it it changes what a worker placement game is about. I'm a very strategic gamer, um, by which I mean, some if I'm playing a game for the first time, and I tend to do this even the games I've played before. Somebody will explain me to, to me the rules. I'll pick up on one thing that they said, and I'll go, okay, well, what happens if I really co- concentrate and focus on that? It's mm-hmm. almost to the exclusion of everything else. If I can win doing that, great. If I can't, well, you know, I've tried something. Um, what I'm bad at is tactics. I'm bad at reacting to people. Um, I remember as a kid, I used to play chess and I'd sort of plan out in my head what I was going to do the first dozen moves or so. And then my opponent would do something that I wasn't expecting and suddenly I couldn't do the move that I was planning to do. <laughs> oh, God. And that, that would be it. So I'd always either win chess right, very quickly or just lose horribly. Normally lose horribly. Oh, okay. um, because I, I'm not a tactical person. I can't react to what's going on. Um, yeah. But because of the way that Dwarf was designed and having these, um, say, changing worker placement spots in every turn, it becomes a very tactical game. You've got to react to what's going on on the board. You've, you've got your overarching um, mission, as it were. The, the aim of the game is to acquire wealth and to forge items. Um, but it's not as simple as just every turn going to the acquire wealth forge item spot because things are coming out that are affecting the game point. Th- those those spots where you can do that might even not be there that turn. Um, there are also enemies coming onto the board because the other thing that dwarves do apart from acquire wealth and forge items is fight enemies, right? Mm-hmm. So that's happening in dwarf as well. Um, I don't know. I think you've looked at the game briefly, Albert. I don't know. You haven't played it, have you? No, I have not played it. Anymore. No. Okay. So I'll just briefly um, explain for you and for anybody listening. Um, the board as it were, is made up of a grid of nine different playing cards. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a deck of cards called the Mountain. Okay. Um, and in the corner of each card is a picture, a graphic representation of that nine-card grid. And one of the cards is shaded in in that grid. So at the start of every round, you turn over two cards from that pile, the mountain, and you place them into wherever that grid tells you to place them. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Yeah. So that's how the two spots are changing each round. Um, If ever you turn over two in one go, the two that go into the same spot, you turn over a third one. If If that goes into the same spot, it doesn't matter. You stop drawing. You never draw more than three cards. So that's the way the variability is changing. Um, and some of these cards that you're turning over are mine spots as you're going deeper down into the mountain to mine mine more more raw materials. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are forging spots where you can go to forge items, which is converting those raw materials. Okay. Um, some of the spots are what we call get help, where you can get some extra workers for that turn. Uh-huh. Um, and other... Other cards that are coming out are enemies, which are referred to as defend spots or defend locations in the game. Um, And what these are doing when they come out is they're attacking every active player. Um, So in the multiplayer game, they're affecting everyone. Okay. So, and again, this is different gamers approaching things in different ways. I I designed the game thinking this was like an emergent cooperative aspect, and that was how I playtested it originally um, with my partner. That I thought... uh, Okay, that he's going to attack all of us, 
it's going to be a problem for all of us. And you know, maybe there can be this bit of negotiations. I, I don't mind taking care of him this go if you take care of him next turn if he's still there. That kind of back and forth and working together. Um, as it turns out, not everybody's as nice as I am. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, I've seen a lot of players who sit there and go, well, frankly, you know, I, I don't care if... if if that enemy's going to take one gold off me, they're going to take one gold off them, then fine, let them do that. It works out the same. Which is a very short-term way of viewing things, I think, because in the long run, you need that gold to forge items to acquire wealth, etc., etc. So you're hurting both of you just uh, in the short term. <laughs> just for the sake of hurting the other person, you're hurting yourself as well. Oh, gosh, okay. That's interesting. But that, it doesn't seem to occur to a lot of people playing it. It's, the, it's Again, it's that zero-sum thing of nobody gets anything is exactly the same as everybody gets something and the difference is subtle but there is a difference mm-hmm. um so i originally designed the game as say for the solo pmp contest it was only um it was only after i did the first prototype and played through it i thought god do you know what somebody else could play the second player here and probably do it better than the ai which <laughs> probably <laughs> says a lot about the way i play games but I think I mean, since then, the solo AI has been improved a bit anyway. Um, okay. But on, on that, so as I said, on the card is a, a grid um, of representing the grid where the cards are going. And um, one of them is shaded in, showing where that card is going to block a, or replace a previous location. Mm-hmm. Um, there are two other icons in that grid as well. One is a, a black meeple and one is a white meeple. And they are governing the AI's behavior, your opponent's behavior. So when you turn over the two cards, the final card you place, you look to see where the black worker, black meeple icon is. And that's where the AI places their first worker for that turn. Okay. You you then place your first worker as the solo player. And again, wherever you put your your worker, you look at the grid for that location and look for the black meeple. And that's where you place the AIs with your opponent's worker for that turn. If it's blocked, if the black one is already blocked at that point, then you place it where the white one is. That's why there's a white one there as well. Oh, okay. That's neat. So the first placement that the, the your opponent takes is always completely random. So you don't know what they're going to do on their turn. But the second one, you've got some lo- you've got some control over. Um, so it's really mm-hmm. trying to sort of simulate what that interaction with another opponent at the table if you're in a multiplayer game trying to second guess what they're doing yeah i like how you i like how you handle that that's a neat idea thanks mm-hmm. um so that's the way that the the game plays out from that point from the solo perspective um so you're, you're acquiring resources you're defending against enemies um and trying to forge items you the game ends as soon as you've managed to forge four items or as long as, or as soon as the the mountain deck, the draw pile runs out. So it generally lasts about half an hour. Okay, how big is the deck? How many cards are in the game? Um, there are fifty four cards in the mountain deck. Okay. Um, there are also some special action cards that you can take, and they're really there to help you um, manage the board state, because the, because of this random evolving way of the the mountain of the the board it means that every game is going to be completely unique mm-hmm. but it also means that there's a, a danger that it can get sort of log jammed with just you look at the board state and you think there's nothing here i want to do this turn 
So the special action cards are there to sort of mitigate that a bit, that you can take one of these special actions and, for example, one of them will be you remove the top card from each spot of the mountain, sort of reset it a bit. Um, and the way you can take those actions is either you can spend both of your workers from that turn, mm-hmm. or you can spend one worker and you can spend four glory. And glory is a resource that you accumulate. Um, you get one glory every time you fight a, a monster. So there's some reward there. It's not just helping everybody you're getting some personal reward as well okay so it's it's, it's another type of resource that's neat you got a couple it, different it is yeah in um so the the winner of the game is the person that has the most in at the end of the game you count up how many items you have how much steel you have and how much gold you have and the winner is the player with has the most in any two of those three categories the first tiebreaker is glory mm-hmm um, so that that again, that glory resource is not only something you can use for buying special action card, but can be a, a valuable tiebreaker at the end. Um, okay. The second tiebreaker is iron, which you need to convert into steel. There's a bit of resource conversion there before you can forge your items. And the final one is is items again. So you c- you can end the game by getting four items, but not necessarily win. So the final tiebreaker there is just rewarding you for hitting that step before anyone else. Okay. But importantly, with Glory, in the solo game, it plays an extra role as well. Okay. Um, which is that if the AI, your opponent, hits 12 Glory, they win automatically. Oh, so you gotta keep them, you gotta keep them from getting there. So sometimes, yeah, because, so that just gives you more choices to make sometimes. Like, well, I could do something this, but that's gonna give him a little bit it more. It does, glory. yeah. Um, early on in the game, it's, it's sort of tempting and easy to, mm-hmm put your worker down or somewhere you get resource and make sure that your opponent takes care of the defending so you don't need to worry about the, the monsters attacking you this turn. But mm-hmm. as the game goes on and they're getting more and more glory, suddenly that sort of switches and it might not be a good idea to give them that extra glory, particularly since you don't know what the next card, that first random placement's going to do. Yeah. Okay, that, that sounds neat. I like, I like games like that that have a lot of resources that interact with each other in complex ways where it's not so straightforward. Because that always seems to give you just more more things to think about when you're playing. And I, and I enjoy games like that where you're thinking a lot about what you do. I hope the, I hope the balance is right in the game. Um, it's not by any stretch of the imagination a heavy game. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for, for a game to say that last half an hour that's, it, that's in that sort of filler length of game, um, that it provides more, uh, more decision space than, than many of that length. Okay. You said the game was in the 2017 print and play contest, right? The it was, yes. Was yeah. this the, the first game you designed or put in the contest? I designed a game in the PMP contest the year before as well, okay. um, which was called Maze How, um, which takes us back to Orkney again, like we were talking about earlier. Um, and that was, um, I think that was the year that I'd been to Orkney. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've. I read a few years ago um, a lot of the Viking sagas, the Icelandic sagas, mm-hmm. um, including the Orkneyinga saga. Um, and in that one, they talk about how... Um, obviously, there's lots of things going on in the saga, as there always is, but as part of it, um, that there's two mentions to Maze Howe. This um, Maze Howe is a, a Neolithic tomb, chambered tomb on Orkney. Um, which is a really impressive site. It says it's very tall. Um, it's, uh, it's got a corbelled interior structure. Um, 
yeah, it's, re- it's really impressive. If anybody ever gets the chance to go and see it, I- I'd recommend it. Okay. Um, but they talk in there about um, there's two events that surround uh, Maze How and the Orkney and Saga. And one is uh, a, a, basically a, a tomb robbery. Um, they break into the tomb and take, you know, you know, loads and loads of treasure out of it. Um, which they bury somewhere, and nobody's ever found where they buried it. Oh, <laughs> to this to this <laughs> so day, it's still out there. <laughs> yeah, allegedly. Um, and the the other part of the the other time it's mentioned, um, there were two Viking yarls who were they landed in the bay there, mm-hmm. um, and they'd been to go and see the the king of Orkney. And as they were getting back to their boat, a blizzard came down. And it was, um, a, you know, a, a sort of a whiteout. It was really, the visibility was really limited and it was cold and everything else. And they saw what they thought was a house. Mm-hmm. And they went round and round the house and they couldn't find a door. Um, so they broke in through the roof. And it turned out this house was uh, Maze Howe, the, the Neolithic chambered tomb. Oh, okay. And they then had to because it's 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 a really tall structure this it's several meters high I, i'm i'm gonna say 12 meters it probably isn't as much as that but it's a really tall mound um so they they broke in they dug in through the roof and fell to the ground and they then had to dig their way out oh wow. and so that those were the sort of the stories and the thing about the icelandic sagas is you know that they're proto-historic i'm never sure how much is true and how much is an embellishment that doesn't bear much <laughs> relation to the reality of events as they happened. Um, but when I went to Maze Howe, it was excavated um, by the Victorians. So about 150 years ago now. And the thing they discovered that's still there, that you can still go to see there, is loads and loads of Viking graffiti on the inside of the tomb. Oh, wow. Oh, that's cool. So, yeah. So suddenly I was stood there and I was confronted with this fact that, you know what? The, the the stories in the sagas might well be true. There were Vikings inside this tomb, um, and I came away for that thinking, "Oh, you know, this is amazing. More people should know about this story." And there's, there's, there's got to be a game in this, surely. You know, that, that's such a cool story, isn't it? The Vikings breaking in and having to dig out to, to dig out or die, basically. Um, so that was the the genesis for Maze How and I, how I ended up designing that game. And that that was uh, it's a hand management game, um. That plays a bit like Only Rim or, um, or Patience or something that you're, mm-hmm. you're playing cards into a row in front of you and you're removing tokens and trying to get out of the tomb in three days before you starve. <laughs> it's a happy theme. <laughs> yeah, okay. Now, for just a, a side note here, for anybody that doesn't know geography like me, mm. the Orkney Islands are way up at the very top of Scotland. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. They're just off the, the northeast coast, the northeast points of Scotland. Um, so if you were to to drive up through the through the UK from Lansdowne up to John O'Groat, which is the most northeast point of the of um, of the mainland, um, the Orkneys the Orkneys are a little archipelago just uh, just off that. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, uh, the Shetland Islands, which are sort of halfway between the Orkneys and Norway. Okay, I imagine those places must when you're there, they must feel inhospitable and cold. I mean, people live there, so it is. Hospitable. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> <laughs> I think it depends on the time of year you go there. To be honest, um, okay. you go there and go there in the summer, and they're glorious. Is is it windy all the time when you're there? It can be very windy. Yeah, okay. um, 
the Orkneys um, in particular, uh, they're, they're very flat. And I think the Shetlands are very flat as well um, and treeless. So, yeah, they, mm. they can be quite blowy. <laughs> okay, yeah, because I imagine, because it, it is very much surrounded by water. I mean, other than that small mm. bit where, <laughs> where you have Scotland below you, but even then... That, yeah, it's it's not a it's not a short hop. It's a couple of hours on the ferry, and oh, you, you, okay. you can't see them from the mainland. Okay, the, the closest experience I have to a place like that was when I lived in San Francisco. I forget the name of the island now. There's an island out out west from there. I think it's like an hour right. ride on a boat. I went whale watching, and we went out there, and it's yeah, it's just a rock, and there's barely any mm. plants on it because it's always got wind blowing on it. Super inhospitable, and it, you know it's not that far from the city. So I can't imagine here yeah, yeah. in a case like this. Yeah, yeah. I, I love islands. Um, there's an island in the in the Bristol Channel, um, which is about twenty twenty thirty miles off the coast of um, of Devon and Wales. Mm-hmm. Um, no, called Lundy Island, which I used to go to every summer as a kid for a few weeks. Oh, neat! Um, fun. Yeah, yeah. I used to really like that. There's a small island, it's half a mile by three and a half miles. Oh, okay. So, so sorry to, to to distract us from the, the subject at hand, but uh, can you tell me? Take you back. Can you tell me more about the uh, the theme of the game now? So, so you've taught me a lot about the mechanics, so probably not completely. Mm. But um, what is the the setting, the story behind the game? So, the story behind the game. I originally, um, as I said, yeah, I, I sort of had this generic idea of what a dwarf is and what a dwarf does, um, and and it was very generic. That was. You know that that'll be familiar to anybody that's into f- fantasy and generic fantasy, I suppose. Um, when it was picked up by the publisher Dragon Dawn Productions, um, they were keen to have a, a game that fit into the, one of their existing worlds, mm-hmm. um, and that world is Zanziar, um, which has had two games based in it so far, I believe. Um, one of them is the eponymous Zanziar, um, which came out several years ago now and had a, a quite a limited distribution. Um, the other game in that it's set in that world would be more familiar to some people in the one player guild, and that's Perdition's Mouth Abyssal Rift. Mm-hmm. That's a big um, game, isn't it? I've heard of that one. It's it's it. a big it's a big game. Um, it's uh, I, it's a game I really enjoy. It's a dungeon crawler, mm-hmm. um, but it's a completely Euro dungeon crawler. There are no dice in it. Um, action selection is uh, taken through a rondelle, um, which itself is a, a rarely used mechanism, a pure rondelle. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some hand management in there as well. Uh, but it's a, it's a really, really clever, um, heavy Euro dungeon crawler, um, fully okay. cooperative. Okay, so now um, we're in the same world as that then. Yeah, um, the the important difference I'll point out between that and this, um, Petition's Mouth Abyssal Rift is also a very dark game. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Rado famously said that it was too dark for, for him and his wife to, to play. Um, Dwarf is not dark. Um, where the art in um, Petition's Mouth Abyssal Rift was, uh, was sort of a very gritty... Um, slightly gory um, type of fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, dwarf, the art, I'm absolutely thrilled with the art. We've had a, a Swedish artist um, who has done some children's um, book illustrations in the past. Um, and he's done all the art for the game in a very sort of, uh, sort of almost fairy tale, um, I think. 
style. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, and it looks really distinctive. It's not really like any other art out there, I don't think. Um, but I, I absolutely love it. I'm absolutely thrilled with it. Um, some of the cards in particular are, are fantastic. Um, the knockers are one of my favorites. Um, so it's, it's set in this world of Zanziar. Um, I believe, um, obviously I had uh, discussions with Tima Motomaki, the, the creator of Zanziar World, who's also the Dragon Dawn, um, publisher. Mm hmm. Um, I think we agreed that it was set sort of 500 years or so before the events that take place in Petition's Mouth Abyssal Rift. Um, by that point, the dwarves in, uh, in Zanziar are a very, uh, communist society. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's emerging in the game that, uh, at the time that dwarf takes place. Um, so this is why, um, as I said, these sort of emergent elements um, of where you might want to help other people um, you, and you get recognition for helping other people and defend, defending everybody's wealth against these monsters. Okay. Um, that feeds in thematically and you get rewarded these uh, communist, if you like, glory medals um, for your services to the people. Okay, you know, I've never thought about it, but I guess I do imagine the doors are sort of communistic because of the... just. The, the confined area they live in, there's only so much you could do. And yeah, so you have I think there's always... It's, it's a strange um, strange thing when you start to think about it, this sort of um, interplay between the the desire for for, for wealth, um, but also the the necessity and, and stoicism of helping out other people around you, mm-hmm. which also seems to be a strong dwarven trait through a lot of fantasy literature. <laughs> it does, yes. Wow, okay. That's neat. Um, let me see. What else do we got here? The game pause. Um, so, okay, so so I've been wanting to know, mm-hmm. if it's a two-player game or a three-player game, are we dwarves with a V-E-S or dwarves with an <laughs> F-S? <laughs> are the Tolkien estate listening? <laughs> they may be. I don't know. I, I, yeah, probably. I, I, I believe sure dwarves are. was the word first invented by J.R.R. Tolkien. So um, whether or not we're allowed to use dwarves instead of dwarfs, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's a, it's a good question about player count as well. So um, as I said, the game I originally um, designed as a solo game quickly realized that it worked just as well um, with two players. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea when we started talking about things with the publishers is I thought maybe you could combine two sets of the game. So you've got two mountains effectively side by side. Um, and play across those two mountains for higher player counts. Um, and that's what we've ended up doing. So you can buy two copies um, and combine them to play up to five players. Um, the the publishers also spent quite a lot of time um, play testing and, um, and, and sh- actually showing the game off to um, various publishing partners around Europe mm-hmm. um, by playing three players on the one grid. And when I found out about this, I said, oh, what, what are you doing? It's, you've got to have the extra grid for three players. There's two players go on that grid. And they said, oh, well, it, it works fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah, so that was what we ended up doing. Um, it, it does provide a slightly different experience, I think, because um, I, I mentioned that one of the action cards that can come out is a gets help one, which gives you some extra workers. So if you're in a position, you've got nine cards in your grid. If you're in a position where three of those get help cards come out at once... Mm-hmm. Then that 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 would mean potentially up to twelve workers between three people. 
so you wouldn't actually be able to use them and they sort of shrugged their shoulders and said well you know you've just got to accept that and they really liked that aspect of it being again different kinds of gamers being as they described it a nasty game yeah. Whereas playing <laughs> playing with two players on three or three players on two copies of the game that can't happen yet <laughs> so you can get out of it what you want to put into it i suppose yeah so i don't know how many times i've played a game solo and i really like it and then i played against other people and I, I find I, it's totally different and it's a meaner game and I want to play it solo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've, I've got so many games on my shelf that I, I love playing those games and I look at them and I think, I, I don't want to play that with somebody else. Yeah, this is going to mess I'm, up my plans. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm worried that it would then sour me on the game playing it solo after that. Once I've, once I've got those feelings of it, I, you know, I, I didn't enjoy that, then maybe I'm not going to want to pick it up and play it. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting dilemma. Because, you know, the game is, it's probably a great multiplayer game, I'm sure, but mm. but then you, you do that and it doesn't work the same. What game did no. I have that happen with? Snowdonia. Uh, I, I played that a bunch solo and then I played a multiplayer right. game. I think it was five or six players. Yeah. And it was so tight and so restricted. Plus, I lost. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, fine. So it's because I lost it. I had trouble with it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was. It was very. It, it ended up being sometimes frustrating. It's like, oh, I, I always do yeah. this next. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and again, I guess those Rosenberg games that we were talking about are a classic sort of case in point in that. And I think mm-hmm. the, the more the more recent games, um, Feast Road and Nusfjord, that have got that where you're, you're you know you're blocking yourself turn to turn, don't have it so much. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. But in the in the earlier games like Caverna um, and, and like well, Fields of Arda, you've got the seasonal thing going. But certainly like Caverna. You can go and do an action, and then the next round, if you really want, you can go do the same action again. Nobody's going to stop you doing that. Yep. So that would become a very different game in multiplayer. Yeah. Okay. And so with Dwarf, you don't have that as... It sounds like you have both ways. In Dwarf, because you you are competing against a a playing opponent, Mm -hmm. um, I think the difference is not so great. Okay, but you, but you mentioned the three-player game. You could play it on on one grid, or you could play it on two grids. I guess. Yeah, that's right. Um, <coughs> and so, so on the Kickstarter w- w- campaign page, we've said um, you, know, you can buy one copy of the game to play one to three, or um, or two copies to play up to five players. And say so that sort of that three-player thing is really depending on what kind of game you like, whether you want it open or tight. But that would sort of um, dictate your choice, really, as to whether you want to play on the one or the two grids. Mm-hmm. I see. Okay. I guess it's not a very big game. Um, I mean, you already said it's like 50 cards and a few other things, yeah. too, right? Um, it's a small box, then, I take it. It is a small box. Um, so the publisher brought out a game last year called Darwinning. Um, mm-hmm. And that was posted out to people by a regular post. Mm. Um, which meant that if so they they came up with a box that fit through people's letterboxes so they didn't need to be in to to sign for it or anything else Um, and this is going to be in the same size box nice okay that's cool I I like games with small boxes I always enjoy small boxes I don't know why (laughs) (laughs) so it's about uh, for for European listeners I can say that it's um, it's an A5 box that's probably uh, just under under an inch deep um so that's how it fits through the letterbox i, I can't think what a5 is in u.s money at the moment yeah. <laughs> well the the a5 is roughly half of a, a letter size sheet of paper yeah yeah that's right now there we go so i've just pulled up the 
the Kickstarter page in front of me now. It says the dwarf box measures 25 by 148 by 210 millimeters. Okay. Which, um, what's that? Yeah. An inch by six inch <laughs> by eight inch. Is it? Okay, yeah. Some, that something right. like that. Yeah, that, sound, that sounds about A5. Yeah. Okay, so so that'll be nice size. That's I like that. Neat. Um, and so the Kickstarter it isn't up yet, but I guess you have. It's access not to as the we're talking. No, I imagine it will be when this is um, when this is going out. So it starts on um, on Tuesday the ninth at six p.m. Um, British time. Okay, so it's in three days from today. Yeah. Okay. Neat. Okay. Very cool. Um. Well, let's talk about the Kickstarter a little bit. Um. Uh, you already said when it starts. How much is the game going to go for? Uh, the Kickstarter price is going to be $25, um, which I think that translates to 29 at retail. So there's a bit of a discount there for, for getting it now. Okay. Um, or $45 if you want to buy two copies. Okay. Not bad. And uh, how long is the Kickstarter going to run? Is it a like a 30-day campaign? It's not. No, we're going for a shorter one. It's going for 16 days. Ah, okay. Nice. I, I like those better. Well, I, I've sort of been involved in the fringes of a couple from um, from the publisher point of view now. Mm-hmm. And from what I can tell, the the midpoint of campaigns really, they, they just get frustrating, really. Um, you're not really gaining a lot of backers during that time. Um, those backers that you do have start to wonder about the momentum or lack or lack thereof. And that can become a vicious cycle where because of the lack of momentum, you're losing as many backers as you're gaining every day. Oh gosh, that's frustrating. Um, yeah, so anyway, it's fairly well known, I think, that you get sort of fifty uh, percent or so, fifty to sixty percent of um, of your total backing in the first forty-eight hours of your Kickstarter, and another twenty to thirty percent in the final twenty-four hours. Yep. So, so that mid-time really isn't earning you much at all. So, I thought a shorter campaign would would work for everyone, really. Mm-hmm. That makes sense, you know. And the sooner you finish a campaign, the sooner everybody gets a game. So, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> right. That's right. Well, okay, so, so it'll be a nice campaign, short campaign, which means it ends around the 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 twenty fifth or so. Of Something July? like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, are is this going to be a campaign with stretch goals and that sort of thing, or? We've got actually a lot of stretch goals, um, okay. but only small stretch goals and only, I think, aesthetic stretch goals. Mm, okay. Um, so my view and the publisher's view as well is that um, there's 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 no exclusive exclusives because that's just not fair on players down the line to be hunting around at Okay, mm-hmm. you missed the Kickstarter. And that would have been great if you'd come and supported us on the Kickstarter and helped to get the game published. But if it did get published and somebody picks it up down the line, they shouldn't have to go hunting around paying stupid prices for bits of a game that they're enjoying. Yep. You know, it's funny. Uh, I've I've uh, I've totally ignored games simply because there's there were stretch goals that I know I can no longer get, so I'm not going to even bother getting the game. Yeah. Even if I realize, I'll probably never use those stretch goal items. <laughs> well, exactly. And and to be honest, I've done the same thing um, mm-hmm. when I have been backing something on Kickstarter as well. You start getting loads and loads of these exclusives and especially exclusives add-ons. And the, if, sometimes it can almost be this inverse thing where it reaches a certain point and you think there's so much content in here and it puts me off the game and I, I drop out of backing. Okay, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, because I, I love getting expansions for games, but I rarely ever use them. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
But anyway, so we, we've gone in sort of day one. The, the game is, um, it's been through two years of development. It's finished. All the components that you need to play the game are there in the box, no matter what happens as soon as we fund. Um, but the fact that the, the game relies um, for, on these cards for its board means mm-hmm. we've got the opportunity to make something really attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really what most of the stretch goals are geared towards is um, extra art. Nice, okay. So if, if it funds, we've got um, you know sort of a, a, an image, a, an original um, piece of art on each card for each um, for each type of card, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, if we do fantastically well and hit all our stretch goals then every single card will have a completely unique piece of art on it oh neat that'd be cool yeah so that's something obviously i'd love to see that whether or not we'll actually do it is uh, another thing entirely right but that's sort of how we've set up these stretch goals to really try and sort of add as much um as much uh, attractiveness to the game as possible so that when people have it out on the table it, it always looks good um, and every turn, every time they're turning over a card, it's something new. It's not something they've already seen that game. Gotcha. Okay. That, that'd be cool. I like this. I'm really excited by this already. I can't wait to see the, the Kickstarter. Good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going to ask you one more question. Mm. Um, and then I think we should close it up because it's, it's about an hour now. Um, yeah. Okay. The, I'm just curious, the, the, the names of the bots for the solo game, I, 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 was, I found that really interesting that, mm. that, that they have names <laughs> and how different they sound. How did those names come about? So this goes back to um, to my very first, when I was in the solo PMP contest, I mm-hmm. came up with those names. Um, oh, okay. And there's been a, a bit of a, a back and forth with the publishers, I think, because the, the dwarves of Zanziar are... Uh, their language is related to Spanish. There's a Latin okay. language they speak in Zanzia. So you'll see in the in the rule book, um, the mountain has a, a Spanish name. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've maintained the names of the bots from when I first designed the game, at which point I was thinking, as I said, more sort of generic dwarf, um, which meant Norse names. We're back to Tolkien again. He took all of his dwarf names from the Icelandic Eddas. Mm-hmm. Um, so- are these so actual I was looking, Icelandic names? They are ancient Norse. Okay. So I was looking for a, a name for them. Originally, I, just, I was just going to have the the one named opponent. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was looking for a name that was that was appropriate for that. And Arnvetter, that the main um, AI opponent in Dwarf. Mm-hmm. Um, that's ancient Norse. It's it was an ancient Norse name, but it also means challenger or opponent. Oh, cool. What, can you pronounce it again? Arnvetter. Arnvetter, okay. Q's Norwegians and Swedes, I'm getting very upset. Oh, okay. <laughs> but while I was finding that, I also found this other world, Eltusfiffel. And that's not a name, um, but it's, it is also ancient Norse. And when I saw it, I thought, oh my God, I've got to use that for the tutorial game, which was originally just going to be the tutorial game. And the literal translation of Eldhusfiffel is Hearthfire Idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Which I just thought was hilarious. So that's how Eldhusfiffel got into the game as well. <laughs> okay, so that's not one I'm going to be playing against a lot. Doesn't sound like it. <laughs> no, so he's really, he's really designed as a tutorial to help you learn the game. Um, okay. I noticed we've had one... Um, 
of our uh, Kickstarter playthrough videos, YouTube playthrough videos, is um, has been prepared and sent to me earlier, and they are playing against that um, tutorial opponent. Okay. Um, which is which is slightly disappointing. It doesn't show off the the solo AI um, as well as it could. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps that's perhaps that's my fault for not just calling it tutorial and giving it a name. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I imagine sometimes maybe if you're just you get home from work, you're tired, you want to play, but you don't want to spend too much. Yeah, time. yeah. Not- the, the game the game works um, at that level, but. Okay. You, you have to sort of do something wrong to lose, I think. You're, you're going to win 95% of the time. Even better. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I get home feeling like that. I may need to pick me up. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the the third... The door. third one, Anveta's father, is... Um, well, as I pronounce it like that, you probably worked it out. That's just... It's Anveta's dad. Ah, okay. He, he, he's a bit more wily and experienced. That's neat. That's right. I with Icelandic names and words like that, they that's what I remember. The spelling looks very different, but what the pronunciation is familiar. Often. It's it's one it's one of those things. I think there are certain letters like the ash and the thorn um, that we really miss from the English language. I think if we still used those instead of replacing it with the Latin alphabet, then people might have less trouble understanding mm. how our words are pronounced half the time. They they would be pronounced <laughs> as they're written down instead of you know is th pronounced th or the. Oh. <laughs> that's cool okay um do you have plans for any more ais or, or are you pretty much happy with that right now I'm, I'm happy with those three in there um i don't i don't plan at the moment on revisiting the game okay um i i, th- I think it works i think all, all games uh they, they have a, a certain breaking point i think where if you keep adding too much they just sort of collapse under their own weight mm-hmm. yep. um and as I say, Dwarf is, is is not a big heavy game, so trying to add too much into it, um, I don't think is wise. Um, who knows? Maybe you know, some point down the line, I'll change my mind. But right now, it it is what it is. Got it. Okay. Yeah. It's it. You know, it's art. It's like when when do you decide if the artwork is done, or, or when do you want to? Yeah. Add more to yeah. It? Knowing when to stop. Yeah. Like the Mona Lisa looks great, but what if she had a funny hat? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Glad I didn't go there. Glad I didn't go yeah. there. Neat. Okay, this this game sounds really neat. I'm I'm like I said, I'm looking forward to the Kickstarter. Uh, so thank you for coming on and talking about the game. Oh, thank you again for having me out. But it's it's been a been a delight to talk to you at last. Yes, <laughs> it's been fun. <laughs> I've really enjoyed this conversation a lot. So so please come back any other time. Oh, I'm happy to. All right, and uh, thank you for listening, everyone. Bye. Okay. All right. So stop recording. Thanks for listening. We love feedback, so we love hearing from you. You can reach me at Julius at OnePlayerPodcast.com or JLBird on BGG. And Albert can be reached at Albert at OnePlayerPodcast.com or Fractaloon on BGG. Our website is OnePlayerPodcast.com with the number one, and we're also on Twitter at OnePlayerPodcast. The intro music is copyright Angus, can be found at Gemendo.com. The transition music is copyright by Dan Elduce Pancaldi, whose page is at DanPancaldi.com. The One Player Podcast is protected under a Creative Commons share-alike license. Thanks for listening.